Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Our message this morning as we continue our consideration of the Gospel of Matthew comes at the beginning of chapter 4. We will be reading together about the temptation of Jesus, so we will read verses 1 through 11, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. This is the Word of God. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Let us pray. God and Father, we pray that by the Holy Spirit you would open your word to us this day, that we also would learn about the nature of temptation, that we, like Jesus, may overcome it and be your faithful sons that we might glorify you and be your faithful testimony to the world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage is about the temptation of Jesus, the Son of God. But before we jump into it, remember that the Son of God is not a title that was given to Jesus alone. It was a title that was given to Adam before his fall, and it is our title as Christians. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Everyone who is led by the Spirit of God, every Christian, therefore, is a son of God. Paul goes on and says, you have received a spirit of adoption by which we cry out to God, Abba, Father. And the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children of God, that means that we are heirs. We are heirs of God and we are joint heirs with Christ. So Christian, each one of you, you like Jesus, are a son of God. And you are a son of God in Christ. He is the Son of God in union with Him. We are all sons of God. So this passage is very important from a number of angles. Number one, 
It shows us what Jesus, the Son of God, did on our behalf as our representative. But also, because we are sons of God, this passage gives us insight into what it means to be a son of God. What does it mean to be a child of God? It gives us insight into God's plan to grow us up as His children. It gives us insight into the nature of temptation. How does temptation come to us? What gives temptation force? Why is it so easy to give in to? Why is it important to not give in to temptation, but to overcome it, to emerge victorious out of it like Jesus did? Why is it important to do that not only for God's glory, but for our own good and happiness? And finally, this passage gives us insight into how to handle temptation and to overcome it. Now, the first thing we need to recognize about this passage is that every bit of it is rooted in the Old Testament. This is something which, as modern evangelical Christians, we tend to miss. But certainly, the Jewish Christians of the first century, the first disciples, would have uh, recognized this. This would have stood out to them very clearly. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, after coming out of Egypt and after coming through their baptism, as we're told, they're passing through the Red Sea on dry ground. And after seeing Pharaoh and his army swallowed up in the sea, the Israelites rejoice and they sing about how God has delivered them. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 15. Who is, among, who, um, is like you among the gods, O Lord? The people sing. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them, referring to Pharaoh and his army. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. This is a great victory party, singing, dancing, the song of Moses, the song of Miriam, great praises to God who has shown his faithfulness and power. But then God leads his people into the wilderness, and for three days they find no water until they come to Marah. There's water there, but the water is bad. They can't drink it. And so the whole congregation grumbles and complains against God, saying, what shall we drink? So Moses cries out to God, and God shows him a tree to throw into the waters, and Moses does so, and then the waters become sweet. They become good and drinkable. So the people drink, and then God leads them to a place called Elam, where there's even more water. There's 12 springs of water and 70 date palms. Now, part of this is symbolism about what God is doing for them. In the Old Testament, the number 70 is a number that is associated with all the nations of the world. Seventy Gentile nations uh, are listed after the flood of Noah. And the 12 springs of water are the 12 tribes of Israel. It's, It's God's people. And you can see what God is getting at here. For the nations to be date palms and to be bearing fruit for God, Israel has to become springs of water for the whole world. But for her to have be springs of water, they have to learn to drink from the water that God gives them. And so this is a great time, 12 springs of water. Then God leads some people then back out into the wilderness, and they suffer both hunger and thirst. 
So we start to see a pattern of God taking him, His people and putting them in positions where they hunger and thirst. And we might wonder, what is going on with this? What is God doing? Well, Exodus 15.25 tells us specifically that God was testing His people. And then later on in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses will expand on this and explain to the people in detail what it means for God to test His people and why He is doing so. He tells them in Deuteronomy 8 verse 5, God was training and disciplining you as a father does a son. He was treating you as sons. And then he breaks that down. Says, okay, what does this mean to be treated as sons? He says, well, first of all, he tested you. And he tested you to see what was in your heart, whether you had a heart of trust and obedience. So the father wants to see whether the son has a heart of trust and obedience. And so the father places the son in a position of privation. This testing, Moses explained, consisted of humbling the people and letting them hunger and thirst, thus putting them in a state of obvious dependence. And then God would feed them and give them drink miraculously through manna from heaven and through water uh, from the rock. He explains all of this. And so what, what Moses is getting at here is that the people, all people, and especially God's people ought to know this, but all people are always in a state of complete dependence upon God. This is something Jesus is going to talk about in the Sermon on the Mount. All people, all the time, whether they know it or not, are in a state of complete dependence on God. God is going to grow up His sons and bring them into a land of milk and honey. He's going to give them fields they didn't sow, houses they didn't build, vineyards they didn't plant. He's going to give them the fat of the land. He's going to give them power. He's going to give them glory. He's going to give them dominion. He's going to give them all those things. And when they receive it, they will be just as dependent upon God for every morsel they put in their mouth as they were when they were out in the desert and had nothing. Okay? They're just as dependent. But the problem is, is that fallen human nature is such that it forgets this when things seem to come easy to us and when they seem to come to us by our own power, what God calls the power to get wealth. But as, as God says in Deuteronomy, I'm the one who gives you the power to get wealth. You're just as dependent. Okay, so he's teaching them in the desert then by putting them in a state of obvious dependence where it is obvious that they're dependent upon him for everything they eat and for everything they drink. And he is teaching them the true nature of the world. He's teaching about himself as, his fa as their father, who's growing them up, who's taking care of them, and he's teaching them what it means to be a son or daughter of God. He says in Deuteronomy 8, all of this was to give you understanding, give you understanding up here, and to make you know, in here, in the heart, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, you may recognize that Jesus quotes it in his response to the devil's first temptation. This is what God was teaching his sons in the Old Testament. This is what Jesus, the Son of God, knew. This is what his sons in the Old Testament had a real hard time learning. 
Every one of Jesus' response to the devil's temptation in Matthew is a quote from Deuteronomy. It is a quote about what God was teaching his people to know. And all of the temptations that Jesus faced, the people implicitly faced in Deuteronomy. So he says, I wanted to give you understanding that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I wanted to bring you, he says, to know in your heart that God is treating you and training you and growing you up as sons. Okay? So going back to Israel in the wilderness, after God leads them from Elam, where they have the 12 springs. Again, as I said, the people suffer hunger, and the whole congregation grumbles against Moses and Aaron and says, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. Now you think about what a thing that is to say. Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat, we had lots and lots of food. They forget their servitude. They forget making bricks without straw. What they remember is we had pots of meat, and we ate bread to the full. You have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, in response, God promises to bring the people manna from heaven and in the morning, every morning, and quail to give them meat every evening on a daily basis. But then God leads them further out into the wilderness. And there is no water for them to drink. So the people quarrel with Moses and they demand water to drink, saying, Why have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Whenever you really want to put uh, pressure on a, a political leader, you bring up children. We're concerned about the children. You brought us out here to kill our children and our poor animals. And it specifically says that the people tested the Lord or tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? So we can see that the first temptation of Jesus, turn these stones to bread, again, is Jesus is in a state of privation. And God is is basically saying, I mean, uh, the devil is basically saying, you cannot rely upon God. He has abandoned you. He's not going to take care of you. You're going to have to take matters into your own hand. And Jesus' response to that is to say, look, there's two types of bread. This is not about bread or no bread. This is about which bread is primary, the bread that we put into our mouth and chew or the bread of God's word that we take into our hearts. This is about which bread created the other bread. The bread of the Word of God created the bread that we eat. Apart from God, we would have no bread to eat. Bread is God's idea. Water is God's idea. And not only did He create bread and water for us, He created bread and wine for us. And so we trust in God. We trust and we live by every word. We live by the most fundamental bread, the bread of God's Word, the bread of God's will. In the Gospel of John at one point, Uh, Jesus does something that the the disciples don't understand. In fact, he's talking to the the woman at the well. You remember that, the woman uh, who is a Samaritan woman. And and he's hungry, he's tired. The disciples go to get food. They come back, he's talking to this Samaritan woman. They're surprised at this, and they wonder. They think he must have gotten 
what's going on, he explains to them, I have bread that you don't know of. I have bread you don't know about. And they think he's referring to, oh, he must have gotten food somewhere else. Where did he get food? And he, he explains, my bread is to do the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus says the most fundamental bread, the source of life, the real source of life, is doing God's will. How do we know God's will? Through the bread of His Word. And so in this second temptation, where um, Satan tells him to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple that God has promised in Psalm 91, and that's what Satan is quoting, God promises in Psalm 91 to protect his people. If you read the whole psalm, the whole psalm is about God's people having enemies and God protecting his people in the midst of enemies. It's the psalm where he says, a thousand will fall at your right hand and ten thousand at your left hand, but it will not come upon you, for the Lord will deliver you. And one of the phrases in there is that he will bear you up by his angels, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So this temptation, again, what is going on, as we're told uh, in the book of Exodus, is that the people in testing or tempting the Lord were asking the question, is God among us or not? And were demanding, was demanding that God give them water miraculously as a demonstration and as a condition of their further faith in Him. This is called testing the Lord or tempting the Lord. After all that God has done, they're asking the question, is God among us or not? I don't see evidence as among us. He's not with us. He's abandoned us. He's left us to ourselves. And for, as a condition of my further faith in Him, He's going to have to give new proof that He is with us, and we will decide what that proof is. That is called testing or tempting the Lord. Now, in the ministry of Jesus, it's interesting that this temptation takes place at the temple. At the temple in Jerusalem is where everything is going to come to a head for Jesus. It is the place where he indeed is going to feel like there is a thousand at his right hand opposing him and ten thousand at his left hand opposing him. It is where he's going to be surrounded. It is where he is going to be framed. It is where he's going to be delivered into the hands of uh, the Gentiles. And Satan says to him, throw yourself down. God promises promises to be with you. God promises to bear you up and not let you strike your foot against a stone. Imagine the effect of such a miracle from the Herod's temple in Jerusalem. Everybody is going to come and surround you in support of you. They will make you king when you do this and you demonstrate the presence of God with you. Well, the path that God the Father wants Jesus to, to walk, is that's not going to be the response of the temple uh, toward him. It's not going to be everybody coming around him and taking him up on their shoulders and, and making him king. The response, as I said, is going to be giving him over to crucifixion. It is the place where he most is going to feel that God has abandoned him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus says on the cross. It is the place where most there will be the greatest temptation to believe that God has forsaken him, that he has been delivered into the hands of his enemies. 
that he's not going to receive protection. He's not going to receive uh, prosperity. God's not going to prosper him. But everything is going to have the worst possible end. But Jesus says, you shall not tempt or test the Lord your God, quoting Deuteronomy. In other words, you believe God's word. You believe God's word in these situations. That's what it means to be a son. You believe the Father's word. You trust the Father. Okay? It is the business of a faithful father to test a son. Because that is necessary for a son to grow up into full sonship. That is necessary for the son to become the person who is necessary to inherit a kingdom which is what is really in view here. All the nations of the world, ultimately, in the third temptation, we're going to see that. That's what it fully means to grow up into sonship is for God to exalt one, give one dominion over the world, give one glory and exaltation. That's what it's all about. But in that process, a son has to learn to trust the father. It is the father, a faithful father, who tests a son to see what's in the heart, to teach them the real nature of things, to teach them about the relationship between the father and the son. It is not the business of a faithful son to test the father. Okay? That's not the way it works. If they're going to test one another, now you have a business relationship. Now you have an arm's length relationship between two equals, business brokers jockeying for position. That's not a father-son relationship. When Jesus begins his ministry, he is the God-man. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He has been baptized. The Holy Spirit has come upon him. All of that is true. He's flawless. There's no unrighteousness in him. He's never had a sinful thought or motive, or act, or word in his life. He's 30 years old, but he's not ready to have dominion over the earth. He's not ready to have all power and authority delivered to him. He's not ready to have all judgment committed into his hands. Even Jesus, the perfect son, must grow into what it means to fully be a son. And this is part of it. When he's in the thick of it, when he's in the thick of opposition, and it seems that all have abandoned him, most importantly, that the Father has abandoned him, because the Father has called him to walk this path, and here he is, hanging on a cross. This is what it's all come to. Hanging on a cross, outside of Jerusalem, because he's cursed. This is what it's come to. Would it not seem that the Father has ultimately abandoned him? This is where he must believe. He must believe. He must believe the Father's word and not put the Father to the test. Not tempt the Father. Okay? And then we come to the third temptation. As the people go on in the wilderness, they ultimately come to Mount Sinai. And we know that at Mount Sinai, Moses goes up on the mountain and God gives Moses the book of the covenant, the tablets of the covenant, the covenant relationship of love between God and Israel. But while Moses is up on the mountain, we know 
that God sends Moses down and says, go down because the people have prostituted themselves. They've committed spiritual adultery against me. When Moses is up on the mountain, again, the people become discontent. They demand of Aaron that he make a God for them. They say, as for this Moses, and by implication, as for this Moses and his God, we don't know what's become of him. Meanwhile, we need direction. We need a sense of unity. We need a sense of purpose. Time's dragging on here. We want you to make for us a God. And so Aaron makes for them the golden calf, and then the people worship the golden calf, and the people say, Behold, O Israel, your God who has brought you out of Egypt. So Moses comes down the mountain. He comes down the mountain, and of course he breaks the tablets because the people have broken loyalty with God. Again, all along the way, what are they accusing God of every step of the way? They're accusing God of breaking faith with them. They're accusing God of being disloyal to them, when actually they're being disloyal to God, and it comes to this. After that, Moses goes back up on the mountain, and we're told that Moses neither ate bread nor drank water for 40 days. So Moses basically takes upon himself Israel and puts himself in far greater privation than she's ever suffered. The longest we've heard her going without water is three days. Moses places himself before the Lord, prostrates himself before the Lord, basically uh, beseeches the Lord on Israel's behalf by taking on himself 40 days of no bread and no water. And then God gives to Moses a new Ten Commandments on new tablets and sends Moses back down and has mercy on the people. So when God's wrath is going to come on the people for this graduating sin instead of graduating maturity, they're worshiping, in effect, Satan now. Moses puts the people on his back and prostrates himself before God on their behalf. And so we can see here then why Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness and he goes there and he is 40 days without food and without water, just like Moses. Because what God is saying here is that Israel, down through her history, throughout her whole history, has simply repeated again and again and again the experience of the people in the wilderness. God says of his people, they do not know my ways. That's one of his great indictments against his people. They do not know my ways. They don't understand what's going on. They don't understand that I'm treating them like sons. When I put them in a position of privation to learn in their hearts how I'm dealing with them, to learn in their hearts that I'm the source of all life, to learn in their hearts that they can trust me, these things, they don't understand my ways. And so this is the sum total of Israel's history by the time the Son of God appears. And of course, Israel is simply a picture, it's a microcosm of all people who have lived in all times in every place. It's a microcosm of the human race. Israel is us. 
And that's the way we tend to be as fallen people. We do not understand God's ways. So Jesus now is going out into the wilderness. He's not eating for 40 days. He's not drinking for 40 days because Jesus, as the greater Moses, is taking the human race on his behalf, Israel and the human race, and saying he's prostrating himself before God. He's taking on a far greater privation to be the true Son of God on all of our behalves. He undergoes every temptation that Israel underwent in the wilderness, and whereas Israel every time concluded that God was being unfaithful to her, accused God of disloyalty, accused God of a lack of love, Jesus is faithful. He is victorious. And He's going to come out of His temptation with the angels ministering to Him, and He's going to come out in the power of the Spirit. This is why the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, understanding the ways of a father. Now, the Bible tells us that God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself tempts no one to commit evil. That's in James. God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself tempts no one to commit evil. How then do we have the Holy Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness for the express purpose of being tempted? It is because God, again, as Deuteronomy tells us, is testing His Son. Think about a test. What does a test give you? A test gives you an opportunity for success or failure. What is the purpose of the test by any good teacher? Is the purpose of the test failure? Is the purpose of the test to make you fail? No. The purpose of the test is to give you an opportunity to succeed, to grow, to mature, to receive greater blessing. Now, the Satan, now Satan, his intention, that's where the temptation comes because Satan intends sin. Satan intends failure. Satan intends curse. But that's not what the Father intends. The Father intends success. The Father intends blessing. The Father intends maturity and growth. Right? That's what the Father intends. But giving somebody the opportunity to success, in other words, giving them a test, necessarily means also giving them the opportunity to fail. Giving the Son the opportunity to become more like the Father necessarily means giving the Son opportunity to turn away from being like the Father. Giving the, the Son the opportunity to grow in the strength of righteousness necessarily means giving the Son the opportunity to turn away from righteousness into wickedness. What does it mean to become more like the Father? Why does the Son have to face temptation to become more like the Father? Doesn't the Bible tell us that God cannot be tempted? Well, if you think about God, if you think about the Father, what is His relation to evil? It's not a static relationship here. We don't have good and evil existing outside, and then we have God who happens to match up with the characteristics of good. No, God is the definition of goodness. And His relationship to evil is that He destroys it. He destroys evil. He doesn't just passively not engage in it. He faces it. He destroys it. 
So for the son to become like the father, the son must face evil. He must face evil and he must destroy evil. Now, part of what makes evil evil is that evil seeks to pervert good. That's what evil is. Good perverted. Good that is turned. All right? And so the son must, to face evil and destroy evil, the son must face evil's attempt to take good and turn it to evil. It must face evil's deception and resist that and overcome it. That's part of destroying evil. That's part of the son becoming fully like the father, which is one of Jesus' main themes in the Sermon on the Mount, becoming like the father. That's what children are supposed to do. Now, it calls the tempter here, it calls him by two names. It calls him Satan at the end of the passage. Jesus refers to him as Satan, and it calls him the devil earlier on. Satan means, means the, the accuser. It means the adversary. It means the adversary. It means the one who is God's adversary, the Father's adversary. And as the Bible teaches us, Satan was an angel, one of the highest angels, who received glory and blessing from God, who turned against the God who created him and blessed him and glorified him. So you see the nature of evil as personified in Satan, God's adversary, is not in committing this particular sin or that particular sin. The heart of it is this disloyalty to God. The heart of it is the turning against the God who created him and blessed him and glorified them. This disloyalty and antipathy toward God is the very heart of evil. Just as good has a face, God is the definition of good, so evil has a face, and it is Satan. The devil means false accuser, a false accuser. And as we're going to see here, with all of these temptations implicit in them, is the devil's accusation against the father that he is being disloyal to the son. He's not being a true father. So why should the son be a true son if the father isn't a true father? That's going to be the temptation in each one of these. Implicit is that Jesus... You cannot rely upon your father to give you the things that he's created you for, that you've been made for. What are the things that you need? Well, first of all, you need sustenance. You need food, water, shelter, clothing. And when we put it in a, in a more developed culture, you need a job and you need income to be able to buy these things. You need the basic necessities of life. That's the first thing you need. Well, here you are. 40 days and 40 nights without food. And it specifically tells us that Jesus was hungry. It doesn't just tell us that the devil came for the purpose of tempting Jesus. It tells us Jesus was tempted. In Hebrews, it tells us that he has been tempted in every way like us, except without sin. Actually tempted. Jesus being fully God who cannot be tempted by evil and cannot commit evil. Jesus, being fully God, cannot sin. But Jesus, being fully man, can be tempted. And we're told he has been tempted in every way like us. In fact, he's been tempted more than us. 
Think about it. Adam faced how much privation in the garden? Incredibly little. He could eat of the tree of life. He could eat of all the trees of the garden. There was one tree he could not eat of, only one in paradise. That was too much privation because, again, what is the deceptive thought that comes in there? Why is God withholding this from you? Why is he withholding this from you? He is not a true father. Jesus, in a fallen world, we undergo more temptation than Adam did. More temptation than Adam did because we don't live in paradise. We do live in many ways in a wilderness and we face more privation than that. But Jesus faced even more than us because God's will for this son, for the son, was the path of the cross. Now we do take up our cross and follow him in a sense, in a true sense, but none of us can carry his cross. None of us can ever walk exactly the path that he walked or do what he did. So Satan implicit in these temptations is suggesting to Jesus again and again, the father is unfaithful. He's not a true father. You're not going to have the basic things that you need in life. I mean, look at you, 40 days without food and water. Use your power as the Son of God and turn these stones to bread. It's like he's not necessarily saying that God the Father is all evil. It's just that, well, he has his own agenda. He has his own interest. And the Father's interest and his glory are not necessarily always the same thing as your good and your happiness. And so there are times, Jesus when you're going to have to take matters into your own hands. You can't simply look to God and wait for Him. You are going to have to take your own happiness and your own fulfillment into your hands. You're going to have to reach out and grab and not wait on God. The same thing with the temptation when He takes Him to the temple. You know, again, the whole whole quote there in the context is being protected and giving success in life. Now we've graduated from the basic necessities of life to having success in life, overcoming opposition, having protection so that you can have success and prosperity over those who oppose you. And Jesus, we know, is going to be completely swallowed up by all, except, as it will turn out, except for the Father. The Father will deliver him in the end, but that's not the way it's going to look. And again, it's going to be like, look, Jesus, you can't have this kind of blind loyalty to God the Father. You can't have that because there are times when you're going to have to use your common sense. You're going to have to look around. You're going to have to see that he is not here. He is not in your midst. He's not here to deliver you. He's not here to feed you. He's not here to prosper you. And you're going to have to reach out and do what common sense demands. And you're going to have to force his hand and force him to either declare one way or the other, or either show his power on your behalf, or you're going to have to take matters into your own hand. Because you see, we like Jesus know, we instinctively know, the biggest atheist in the world instinctively knows that we were created for dominion. We were created to take dominion. We were created for glory. We were created for exaltation. 
In the early days of the United States, one of the presidents had a phrase called manifest destiny. And of course, by that just meant, you know, taking all of the land of, uh, of the United States from Atlantic to Pacific. But in a way that he never intended, that's the instinct of every human being. Manifest destiny over the world because that's what we've created for. We know it's in our bones. We know that our happiness and our fulfillment are found not only in just having our basic necessities met, but in having success and prosperity and overcoming in life and ultimately being exalted and crowned and given glory. We know that. And so again and again, Satan is saying to Jesus, you know, your happiness and your fulfillment and what God the Father is about and His glory are not exactly the same thing. Not all the time anyway. And if you want happiness, don't you deserve a little happiness, Jesus? Don't you deserve some fulfillment? Then you better reach out and grab it. So you see, Satan is acting like the voice of reason here. He's not, I'm just saying, Jesus, I'm just, I'm just pointing out the situation that you have a choice. And I'm like, hello, hello, look around. You're going to have to make a choice. And when it comes to exaltation and power over the nations, you know, Jesus, do you recognize who has power over the nations right now? I'm the one you need to be talking to. This was given to me, he says in Luke. This was given to me when Adam fell. I'm the one with power over the nations. No need for unpleasantries here. No need for making this difficult. Very simple. Worship me, and you will have all the nations and all the glory. But the path the Father wants Jesus to walk is the path of destroying evil, not making approachment with evil, not making a pact with evil, obtaining dominion by destroying evil. But these things are such that even Jesus, the Son of God, could be tempted, could feel the pull and the weight of these temptations because of the path that God the Father is asking him to walk. In the end, it says that Satan leaves him for an opportune time. We know that this is not the last time. And I think it's fair to say that when Satan really shows up again is, well, we know one time is when Peter tells Jesus, no, you don't need to die. That's not going to happen. Jesus repeats the same phrase he says towards Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. Don't talk to me about another path that leads away from the cross. And, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before his arrest, we're told that Jesus, in, in deep, deep distress, we're told that he sweat great drops of blood from his forehead. And, actually, there has been documented medical um, evidence of this phenomena of people under sometimes extraordinary stress and, and distress. Um, the, the pressure and everything, it makes the capillaries in the forehead burst. And then you literally begin to sweat blood. And so that is what is going on with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a real temptation. And so we need to see how this applies to us as God's children. Because these are God's ways. These are God's ways for us. This is where he wants to lead us. This is how he wants to teach us, to mature us, to lead us from glory to glory. 
But it involves us going with, from, with privation at different times. Sometimes our necessities may not be there. Now, in our time in America, that's really a rare thing. But for most people and most of the history of the world, privation, at least from time to time, is a pattern of life. Experiencing opposition, experiencing hardship, feeling abandoned, feeling like God is not with us when we're facing opposition or difficulty and so forth. See, what we all want in these things that we know that we're created for, our happiness and our fulfillment are tied to them, is we want a constant sense of God's presence, that He's with us all the time. He's with us when it comes to, to, to the basic essentials of life. He's with us when it comes to success and overcoming. He's with us when it comes to dominion and glory. He's with us. But God puts us all in situations where we do not have the present sense of His presence. Where we must become mature sons and daughters. Where we must believe in the loyalty of the Father. Where we must face and destroy evil by destroying the temptation. Where we must believe His Word. We must remember He's the one who's created the food. We must remember that the, the wrongest path of all, the path of Jesus, the Son of God, to the cross, all the unfairness of the world, everything that can go wrong, every bad thing, all the animosity, all the hatred, there it came down. And that path, If there was ever a path of tragedy, this was it. And the end result of that path of tragedy is that Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father. He's given all power and authority over all nations. He's given all judgment committed into His hands. The worst storyline of all becomes the greatest storyline. That's what we have to remember. When we face temptation, and if you're not feeling the real pull... And the real sense that God is not really paying attention right now, He's not really with you, then you're really not being tempted. When we're tempted just as a matter of appetite, when we're tempted to do something that is inherently bad for us, committing adultery, doing these other things, you know, just at an appetite type level, that's temptation, but that's really minor temptation compared to the heavy temptations. The heavy temptations that come to us, the temptations that draw us to turn away from God, to move away from God, to look elsewhere for our health and our happiness and our fulfillment, are all temptations that involve making us feel like God is not with us. He's not a faithful follower. We cannot leave our happiness and fulfillment in His hands. They all involve that. And what's important is for us, number one, to remember what God was teaching. This is what we need to do. And young people, I want to specifically speak to you as teens. Because when you're little kids, you have your parents there watching over you. And you never really come under the full force of temptation. As you move into the teen years, as you're becoming adults, you will experience for the first time 
the real pull of temptation. You will experience for the first time that voice coming within you that I cannot leave my happiness and fulfillment to God because I don't know if he's paying attention. I don't know if he loves me. I don't know these things. I'm going to have to act according to the way I see things. You know, the opposite of Proverbs 3, where it says, don't lean on your own understanding. Well, what choice do I have? Because God is not here. He's not with me. That's temptation. That's what it is. Now you're feeling it. Now you're in the same position that Jesus was in. And you need to remember, what do you need to do? You need to stop when you're in this position. And you say, what is really going on here? This is not really about food or drink. This is not really about a job. This is not really about prosperity. This is not really about finding a husband. This is not really about you know, happiness. This is not really about any of that stuff. This has to do with what it means to be a son of God or a daughter of God. You know, when we re- look at this temptation, and, and Satan says every time, if you are the son of God, we think that Satan is calling into question and placing doubt into Jesus' mind about whether he is the Son of God. But that is not, and that's something we can tell from the Greek. In the English, if means if. In the Greek, if can mean one of three things. It can mean plain old if. It can mean if, and it's not. In other words, if you are the Son of God and you're not. Or it can mean if and it is. If you are the Son of God and you are. All of those three are possible in the Greek construction, and the Greek construction here is the last one. Satan is saying, since you're the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. Throw yourself down off the temple. Fall down and worship me. Since you're the Son of God. This is not temptation about whether Jesus is the Son of God. It's temptation about what it means to be the Son of God. It's, it's not calling him to figure out what his true identity is, it's testing his relationship with the Father. And all the deepest temptations we face will do the same thing. So we need to remember, number one, he is our Father. What is going on here is our relationship to him is being called into question. His loyalty is being called into question in our hearts and by the tempter. We need to recognize, number two, this is God's way with his children. This is God's way of giving us opportunity for success, of giving us opportunity to grow in maturity, to go from glory to glory. When we experience this, this means that God is dealing with us as sons. This is the way God dealt with Jesus. This is the way God dealt with the one he exalted to his right hand and gave everything to, all right, whom, in, whom we are in union with. This is the way he deals with sons. He's dealing with us because he loves us this way. What are we supposed to remember? Number one, the true source of life is God's will and God's word. What we're supposed to remember is that God will be with us to deliver us and prosper us, but he doesn't always make that easy. It's not always at the front end. It's death before resurrection. No resurrection without death, and we have to remember that this is God's way, and we walk this way with him. Remember these things. Remember he's dealing with us as sons. This is the way we need to think when we're in the midst of temptation. Don't let yourself drift off. Young people, when you feel yourself drifting off, and you know what I'm talking about, 
When you start feeling like, you know, all this Christian stuff and all this church stuff and all this, this is lame. It's lame. Nothing really comes from it. It doesn't seem to be very exciting. That's not my happiness and my fulfillment. And you start to dabble thinking, I got to reach out. I got to take care of things myself. Know what's going on. It has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with it. It has to do with you and God. You and God. Nothing else. The way you act, the way you behave in this is your declaration whether all good things are the gift of God, which is what it says. A gift cannot be taken. If you reach out and you grab it on your terms, it's not a gift anymore because a gift can only be received. It cannot be taken. And when you take the gift instead of receiving the gift, it takes it from being a gift to being something else, and it always will fail to live up to its billing The thing you reach out and take will never, ever satisfy you. God gives. Every good thing is a gift from Him. You want to receive from Him. Now, does that mean you go through life passively? You sit, you don't get out of bed, you just lay there and wait for God to give you? No, that's not what it means. But the opposite of reaching out and grabbing is turning to God. And turning to God is an active thing. It's an active thing. Jesus cried out to his Father. We know that through his life. We know that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Many of the Psalms are really Jesus crying out to his Father. Crying out to the Father is not a lack of faith. It is faith. So it's not a, faith is not passive. But so the opposite of turning away from the Father, of thinking He's disloyal and reaching out and grabbing for yourself, the opposite of that is not doing nothing. It's turning to God. What's the opposite of turning away from God? Turning to God. Turn to Him in prayer. Pray through this thing. Say to God, I understand, Lord, what's going on here. I understand what the issues are here. It's you and me. I understand. I see it. But I still feel the pull. Help me. Be with me. My intent is to follow you. I'm turning to you. I'm looking to you, and I'm asking you to deliver me out of this. That's what faith does. That's what Jesus did. This is how, and what's the end result? Our relationship with the Father becomes stronger and stronger. We become more and more and more of a son or a daughter. We experience more of God's presence. We experience more of his deliverance. And ultimately, we, with Christ, inherit all things, and we inherit God's glory. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.